well. This has never happened to me before. My iPad is is um, is updating. <laughs> so guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to preach. So I just I just want to make a, a couple more announcements, and one of them again happens to be um, if you happen to be a deacon, if we, if you can meet me over on the side, you know, over my office for a couple minutes, that would be great. Uh, so we so we can just go over um, some of the testimonies. And let's be praying for Richard and others. So there's a number that happen to be again sick in our congregation, but so thankful and so thankful for this passage of Scripture. We're going to start and look at the main body of the sermon again of Stephen. And we realize that these stakes are really high, that there happens to be again a lot of tension right here during this time. And the reason why is because people are so vehement. They're so angry. They're so, again, uh, uh, there's a lot of vitriol that happens to be going on. And the high priest, again, is asking him to, uh, to uh, answer for these charges. And we realize the charges are absolutely serious, aren't they? You look at the charges, and he's, he's um, yeah, yeah, I can, I can use it. That'd be great. And in his uh, charges happen to be, again, that he's speaking against the temple, against the law that happened to be, again, of God. And he's also, thank you, Todd. And he's also speaking about the whole way of life of the Jews, you know, everything, again, that they um, had as far as, again, a way of salvation, a way, again, of uh, trusting God, and a way, again, of being found in his kingdom. And, uh, and uh, the, the, the cost, again, of this, the cost of blasphemy happens to be stoning, happens to be, again, death. You know, and, according, and, and the witnesses that happen to be gathered here at this time, all of the witnesses, they're in unison. It's unlike Jesus Christ. All of them agree that he has been speaking against the temple at this time. And at this time, what most people did when they were on trial in the ancient days and there happens to be witnesses against them, is they just kept quiet. And the reason why they kept quiet is because they wanted mercy. Whether they happened to be true, whether they happened to be false, they threw themselves on the mercy of the court. But, but Stephen is full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit. In other words, he's controlled by God. And what he's going to do is boldly uh, proclaim the gospel again of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so far again through this book, we realize that we've got snippets of various different sermons. Some of them have uh, summaries, some of them have uh, uh, given us various different parts. But this is the first sermon that we have recorded in the Christian era where it happens to be the full one. Now, I know it goes all the way down to verse number 50, and if you read it, it seems long, but it's really not that long. You know, if you read it aloud, it probably wouldn't take you more than five to seven minutes to read it aloud. You know, and so it's not that long of a sermon, but it's important because it indicates how early preachers of the gospel explain Jesus Christ, especially explain Jesus Christ to the Jewish people. But it's also important because it gives us an indication. Here's, here's these Christians. Here are these born-again believers. Here's these Jewish Christians, and they've just been saved, how they looked at the Old Testament. You know, on the other side of the cross, we realize there was much confusion on this side, this side before the cross, but now there's new insights, there's new gleanings, you know, there's a new and fresh way. Everything becomes so much more clear. Now, many modern readers, when they read this sermon, this is the thing that they see. They don't see much here. You know, it just seems like a rehashing of the Old Testament. That's just what, what is there. And it just it doesn't seem that dynamic, doesn't seem that great. But it must, you know, it must have been dynamic. It must have been great. And the reason why we say that 
is because of the response at the end. The response at the end is this vicious hatred that comes against Stephen. I mean, it really riled them to the, uh, to the nth degree. And so there's more that happens to be again right there. And the, and the question is, what is the main import? What is the main thrust of the message? And the main thrust is basically this. The Jews knew the Old Testament. But here's the main thrust. The main thrust is, you really don't know the Old Testament. You're wrong in your interpretation, again, of the Old Testament. You know, because they looked at the Old Testament as a way of righteousness, a way that I may gain, if I meet all of these things, all of these requirements, that I may gain a standing, that I may gain, again, a position, a merit, a righteousness before God. You know, and they counted on things like circumcision. They counted on things like being, a, being of a certain nation. They counted on things like such as keeping the law. They counted on things such as worship that happened to begin of the temple. If I can check enough boxes, then I can be absolutely righteous before God. And Stephen comes along and he preaches this message. And he preaches his message and basically saying, you know, I'm going to teach through the Old Testament. In other words, this is nothing novel. This is nothing new. This is what has always been in the Old Testament. And here's what you have to realize. You're wrong. You know, you need to repent. You need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you do not, there's absolutely no hope for you. You know, and this is where they were wrong. They made assumptions that happened to be over the Old Testament. And they made assumptions about themselves. You know, and I think of this passage like this are really challenging for us because so often we can read the Word of God, so often we can make assumptions about our own lives, about our own hearts, about our own righteousness that are absolutely wrong. You know, and we need to hear, and, so, and we need to hear the Word of God, and so often we hear the Word of God, but we don't really hear, hear the Word of God. Isn't it true? You know, you've heard from this pulpit. You're hearing it on Wednesday night that the biggest problem that you have in your life is the same as mine. And it happens to be, again, not outside of myself. It's inside of myself. My biggest problem that I have in my life before a holy God, before anyone else, happens to be my own foolish heart. And you've heard that, you've heard that over and over. You've heard it taught through the Word of God. And yet we say things so often like this. You know, the biggest problem in my life happens to be my wife. She nags and nags and nags, and I'd be so much better off, again, if she would just clear her action, if she'd just get things right. Or a wife. You know, the biggest problem in my life, I would be so happy if I didn't have that buffoon, again, who sleeps next to me. You know, and we think the biggest problem that we have happens to be, again, outside of us. And we all know this verse, and the verse again happens to be in Mark chapter 7, in verse number 21, and it says this, For from within, out of the heart of man comes evil thoughts, right? Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from, here it is, within, and what do they do? They defile a man. And the reason why I bring this up, my whole point is there, is we can get angry, we can get frustrated, and we can think the thing that is defiling ourselves happens to be again outside of us, right? We can hear the scriptures, but not really hear the scriptures. Now, why is that so important? That is so important. I want you to get this. It is so important that we hear the word of God because if we do not hear the word of God about our own foolish hearts, our own sinfulness, if the Jews don't hear, but their own sinfulness that happens to be in their heart, then the gospel is, is at very best the second best news. 
It's not the primary news. It's not what I need. You know, and you can see this. What I need, again, is a different spouse. What I need is a different husband. What I need is a different wife. What I need is different kids. And therefore, the gospel becomes irrelevant in our lives. You know, and this is the same with the Jews. If I've checked off all of these boxes, you know, that is taught in the Old Testament, what is this need of repentance? What is this need of a Savior? I am righteous before God, and the gospel is absolutely irrelevant. And so what I want us to do is start going through the body of this sermon this morning. It's a fascinating sermon. And I hope, again, by the, by the end of it, you'll see how fascinating it is. You know, and I really want us to look, begin looking at the life again of Abraham and why he brings up Abraham here. You know, I want us to go through, I want us to see the meaning, the thrust, where he's going through. And then I want us to talk about Stephen as an example, because I really believe he's an example to each one of us. You know, how to boldly, how to bravely proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I want us to read through, you know, we all already did this morning, but I want us to do it again. Read through the first opening eight verses and look at it. You know, ask yourself, what, what's the purpose of bringing these things out? You know, what's the purpose of the rehash of this history in his audience? And why does it engender such a strong reaction? And let's just sort of look at those opening uh, eight verses here. And it says, beginning at verse number one, and the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. And he said to him, go out from this land and from your kindred and go into a land I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into a land in which you are now living. Yet he gave no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he, had died, though he had no child. And God spoke to this effect, that your offspring would be sojourners in the land belonging to others who would enslave them and inflict them 400 years. And I will judge the nation that they serve, said God. And after that, they shall come out and worship me in this place. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision, and so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And, of Isaac, became, and Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. You know, it's amazing to look at Stephen that happened to be right here because I think Stephen's so brave. He really is. Because one of the things we have to do and we're reading historical narratives is we have to ask ourselves, what's going on? You know, what's the scene? And let me say, say this, there's been a couple times that I've preached in certain situations where I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that most or a lot of the people that happened to be in the audience at that time were hostile to the message of the Lord Jesus Christ, who did not like what I was saying. But here's what I always took comfort in. There were, there were some who agreed with me. There were some friends that happened to be right here. Here, when Stephen preaches, he has no friends. They're all enemies of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. They all want blood. But what he does is so great because he doesn't water down the message. He doesn't try to find uh, things of commonality. What he does is boldly preach that message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And what he has to get them to see is their own sinfulness before they will ever trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just say this for, for the young people that are happen to be here. You know, so often we talk about what's cool. 
let me tell you what's cool. Stephen's cool. He really is. You know, he's, he's not bent this way or bent that way by the culture that he's living in. You know, he's counter-cultural. This is truth, and I'm going to proclaim this truth. And, and I love, again, his bravery that happens to be again right here. And we realize the accusation that's made against Stephen is he's preaching something novel, something that does not fit with the Old Testament. And you have to realize that one of the cardinal teachings that happened to be again of the Jews is that they were the people of God. Think of it. They prided themselves in this. They were the people of God by birth, by their relationship with Abraham. You know, we read that passage in Philippians chapter 8, and, and one of the things, you know, Paul says, you know, people have confidence in the flesh, but I have more confidence in the flesh. And one of the things that he names as far as confidence in the flesh is this, of the people of Israel. You know, if you look at my credentials of why I'm righteous before God, this is what he's saying when he's Saul of Tarsus. I am of the people of Israel. I am related to Abraham. And, re, and re, re, remember the Pharisees, they go out, John the Baptist is preaching in the wilderness, and he's re, pre, preaching a message of repentance, and they um, metaphorically cross their arms and say this, we don't need to repent, we are the children of Abraham. And remember the response of John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3 and verse number 8, he says, bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham, right? They would, and let me just say this, they were as dead as those stones that happened to be again on the beach. You know, they were dead, lifeless, hardened to that message that happens to be right there. And they were counting on banking on something, their pedigree. You know, who they were, that they were of this stock. And just by that, they were accepted before God. And that's Stephen's whole point. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees. And we, 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 we mentioned this last time we were together. When he called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, he would have been a moon worshiper. And we all know, again, that uh, idolaters, what they deserve is the judgment. They worship the creation, the moon, rather than the creator God. And what they're worthy of is none other than the punishment of God, the judgment of God. But it's even more than this. Because think of it, the only holy place, the only place that God can be found, they localized God, they made him a geographical deity. The only place that he could be found is in Israel. And the only place that he could be found really in Israel happened to be again at the temple. This is what's behind the temple worship. You know why it's so important? Because this is where our God is and this is it. This is it. He's localized. This is the only place that happened to speak. And here's Stephen's whole point, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here, he's here. Here's Stephen's whole point. God cannot be found in just one postal code. You know, God is a God again who happens to be again everywhere at the self-same again time. You know, and, and we realize this as we follow the progression again of Abraham. After God called him to leave Ur of the Chaldees, he goes there and he's in Haran until his dad dies. And then God told him to go. And he goes into the promised land, right? And they took great comfort. We possess the promised land. This is our land. We possess it. But let me ask you, how much of the promised land did Abraham possess? Anyone know? None. Absolutely none. In fact, he was a sojourner. 
he was a stranger in that land. All of his life. In fact, the only land that Abraham ever uh, owned happened to be his burial plot. Right? And even the people of Israel. Here's the people of Israel. Here are the called people of God. And here they spend 400 years in captivity. And let me just say this. Uh, Stephen rounds it off. It's really 430 years. But he rounds it off. 400 years. You know, and the main point that he's trying to make is right there in verse number two, where, where, when he says this, he says, brothers and fathers, hear me, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. That's so important because it's this, the God of, here it is, glory. Now, when we speak of the God being the God of glory, what are we talking about? And we're speaking about a manifestation of God. We're speaking again of his worth. We're speaking of his majesty. We're speaking again of his greatness. The God of glory appeared to Abraham while he was in Mesopotamia, while he was in the Ur of Chaldees. And here's the whole point, because they're concentrating in one place. They're concentrating in one place. Oh, this is the only place you can know God. This is the only place, again, that we can worship God. This is the only place where we can serve God. God can be found in Mesopotamia just as much as he can be found in Israel. God can be found in Egypt just as much as he can be found in the temple. And let me t- 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 tell you, if that's, no tr- uh, if that's not true, you know, how can we go into all the world and preach the gospel? How can God make kingdom citizens from every tribe, every kindred, every race, every nation, every tongue? Right? right? God is a God who's not provincial. He's not confined to one postcode. Now, that's something he handles with Abraham. You know, both those things, both, again, uh, Abraham, you know, the greatness of Abraham is not found in Abraham. It's found that in his God, the God who calls him. You know, and, and the other thing, again, happens to be uh, geography. But the, the other thing that he names that the Jews trusted in was circumcision. And this is really interesting, how, how the Jews looked at circumcision. Because in verse number 8, it says this, And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on what? On the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob. And Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. Now, I want you to think through that. Because what is circumcision? And circumcision, I want you to hear this, is a sign of the covenant, Right? You know, and we can be thankful for signs because signs are pointers, right? When you see the sign that happens to be out front, it says Emmanuel Baptist Church. None of you came this morning and parked under the sign. Why? Because the sign is pointing to something. You know, the people of God are gathering together in this building. It's telling us something. Look over here. Go over there. And that's what a sign does. So when we celebrate Christmas, right, we put it on our calendar as what? A sign, an indicator. The reality is not the Christmas celebration. It's not, again, getting together with family and having turkey and having presents. It is a sign that points to the coming of the Redeemer, the coming of the Christ, the coming of the Son of God, the enfleshment of deity, right? When we celebrate Easter, Easter is not, again, in and of itself to be celebrated just for the fact of Easter, is it? You know, Easter bunnies. And, and again, well, what do we have at Easter? Um, ham or something like that, you know, with all the family. But it points to something. It points to Good Friday and what Christ did on that cross and the great victory on Easter Sunday. In fact, that's why we gather on Sunday. Sunday is a resurrection day, isn't it? And it's an indicator. You know, it's a pointer. It's directing us again towards something. But here's what happens over time. 
What happens over time is the sign becomes the main thing. Isn't that true? The sign becomes the main thing. And so we start trusting in the sign rather than in what that sign points to. And here's what circumcision was. Circumcision was a sign of the covenant, of the promises of God, right? It was the promises of a people. It was the promises of a land. It was the promises of a coming Savior. And even Abraham, Abraham didn't put his confidence in the sign. You can, you can see that over in Hebrews chapter 11, beginning at verse number 8, and it says this. It says, and listen to the word faith, because it's used twice here. It says, by faith, Abraham obeyed. When he was called to go out, of the, out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise. And how did he live? As, a, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. Notice it's a promise, it's a promise, it's a promise. For he was looking forward, listen to what he was looking forward to, to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And so that's what he's looking forward to. That's what he wants to again see. You know, and so this message Although it's subtle right here, it becomes, again, stronger and stronger as Stephen goes through this history of the need, of the necessity, again, of the Savior and seeing their sin that happens to be in their life. But one of the things, again, I want us to ask is as we look at the preaching, again, of Stephen, is as we even look at these opening verses, what are some observations that we can make for ourselves? What are some observations? I know we're all supposed to be gospel testimonies, right? We're all supposed to go out from here and make known the Lord Jesus Christ. And what are some observations that we can make? And here's one great observation. Preaching the gospel, I don't know if you know this or not, but preaching the gospel is not always easy. Do you know that? You know, witnessing, again, to those that happen to be again around us can be very, 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 very costly. Can it? You know, and I know uh, there's a tendency on some, you know, to be very arrogant, and every time that they have an opportunity, they want to engage in, in some sort of argument, some sort of battle. And many times they'll use the gospel, right? right? Here's an excellent opportunity to put this guy in this place. And it has nothing to do with the love of God, and it has nothing to do with the love of others. And I realize that there happens to be, again, people like that, but I think, by and large, the greatest problem that we have as the people of God is this, is we're just not intentional enough. Isn't it true? We're just not intentional enough. You know, uh, we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that people can hurt us. We know beyond a shadow of a doubt that people can ridicule us. We know beyond a shadow of a, of a doubt people can reject us. There is much that happens to be, again, costly in making known Jesus Christ. In fact, look at Stephen. It was very costly, didn't it? It cost him everything. It cost him his life. But may I say this? May I say this? And I hope this is for encouragement. It did not cost Stephen anything. It really didn't. Because think of it. Nothing of eternal value. When he proclaims Jesus Christ, he's here on trial. He's up for his life. Nothing of eternal value is at stake when Stephen preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. His life is secure in Jesus Christ. His great love for the Lord Jesus Christ compels him to make known the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we, and we know the end of the story. We'll, we'll, we'll see this when we get into chapter number eight. We'll see uh, Saul of Tarsus become, again, the greatest missionary, the greatest evangelist that happened to be again, the greatest figure, right, outside of the Lord Jesus Christ in Christian history. You know, uh, Saul of Tarsus will become Paul. And no doubt God used this instance right here, this incident and in the preaching again of uh, Stephen to really uh, bother his heart to really be that prick that happens to be again in his side, to really show them the authenticity, the need of a Savior. He probably couldn't get it out of his mind, out of his heart. And let me just say this, because this is an amazing thing. If you, have, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you probably were witnessed to, testified to, by another believer in the Lord Jesus. And they probably used Pauline theology, didn't they? The words of Paul, Right? Right, Romans 3.23, all of sin and come short of the glory of God. That all talks about you, right? For the wages of sin, I want you to know the wages of sin. Wages of sin is death, but let me tell you about what the gift of God is. Eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And let me t- t- tell you, think of this right here, because think of this. This doesn't happen, right? That conviction of Paul. Now we're talking about the providence of God. God can work in different ways. But if this doesn't happen, this doesn't happen, and we're not here 2,000 years later talking about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, it's absolutely stunning, you know, how God works. And, and my whole point is this. There is more being done when we witness for the Lord Jesus Christ than we can ever comprehend that happens to be in our life. The question is this. Are we being intentional? You know, uh, God asks us to pray. Are, are we praying for specific individuals in our life that we might be gospel testimonies, that we might herald the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are we being intentional in giving that message? You know, we see Stephen here, again, gives that message. Another observation that we can make of this uh, passage is that the way Stephen validates the truth of the gospel, he validates it this way. He validates it with the scriptures, doesn't he? And the reason why I say that is because I think a lot of times we don't have confidence. You know, that the, word, that the Spirit of God can work the Word of God to do what we cannot do. That's why I think apologetics. Apologetics is a fascinating study. And it's basically this. It's, a, it's an argument for, for the faith. You know, we might argue for the existence of God. We might argue, again, creationism over uh, evolution. We might argue for the validity of the, of the uh, resurrection. I think it's great for believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, but this becomes many times our main witnessing tool. And I think we've forgotten that the power of the message is found in the power of God that's found, again, in his word that's been given to us. You know, Paul even says in Romans chapter 1 and verse number 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the what? Power of God for salvation to who? To everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. It's the power of God. God works through his word. And that's where Stephen preaches from. And in a day and age where people many times look at the scriptures as outdated, as old, again, as unnecessary that happens to begin in their life, Stephen preaches the old, old, Old Testament. I mean, it's old, right? It's at least 400 years. The last book, again, was written 400 years. It's an old, old book, but he preaches Jesus Christ. Here it is, his life, his, his uh, crucifixion, and his resurrection, and the hope that is found again in him. 
And I wonder, again, if we look at that, if we recognize the validity of Scripture. But if we recognize that this is Scripture and this is where our message comes from, let me ask you this question. Can you explain the gospel? Can you? You know, if an unbeliever or a situation presented itself where you're given an opportunity or an unbeliever asked you, why do you go to church? Do you think, I, do you think at death that I'm going to go to heaven? You know, how, how does a person get to heaven? How can he be sure? You know, I, I think that there's more. I, I think there's a whole bunch of ways to heaven. What do you think? You know, do you know enough of the word of God where you could actually present the truth of Jesus Christ, him crucified? Yea, risen from the grave as our eternal hope for sinners like us. You know, and are we being intentional? Are we looking for opportunities? When was the last time that you actually opened up and shared the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to an unbeliever in your life. Boy, that's convicting, isn't it? Easy to talk about those who are having to be friends, those who happen to be in the people of God. But when was the last time that we gave that gospel testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ? Another observation we can make through this sermon is this. It's not always about results. I think we fail many times. We live in a world, you know, where we, we, we read of success stories. We read about a guy who had a poor upbringing, and all of a sudden he became a superstar, maybe in hockey, maybe in basketball, maybe in soccer or something like that. But he rose up, and look at all the money he has. Look, look at all the accolades he has. And we want to clap, you know, because he has so much external success that happens to be in his life. We might read a biography about some businessman, you know, and, and, he, and, and he, here he is. He opened up his garage, and he started his business in his garage, but now he's multi-multi-billionaire. You know, and look at him. He's so successful. Look at the fruit of all of his hard work. And a lot of times, as a people of God, we can measure success by the external fruit that we see that happen to be again around us. I mean, think of it. Even early in the book of Acts, if we just have the early chapters of Acts, we would think that this is supposed to happen all the time, right? Peter preaches, and what happens? 3,000 come to a saving knowledge of Christ. You know, here's Paul, here's Paul uh, I'm sorry, here's Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, and they give their defense. And afterwards, we see 5,000 individuals come to Christ. Right? But here's the question. In the immediate context that happened to be right here, how many people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? How many people, like we see in Acts chapter 2, leave the big crowd and say, I'm going to go over here to the little crowd of one and be identified with you, Stephen. And Stephen, can you baptize me in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? You know, that I might walk in faith. How many? And the answer is what? The answer is what? A goose egg. None. You know, and, and, here, and here's the thing. I know, again, more is going on, right? I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's word will not come back void, but it will produce what God intended it to produce. I realize that. I realize there's more going on. I realize many times when we, uh, when we preach, when we articulate the gospel, there's more going on in the heart and in, in, of the individual. Think of it. How many of you, and you don't have to put up your hands, but how many of you came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ the first time you heard the gospel? I think it's very few of us. And here's the thing. God is working his will out in his people and doing far more 
than we ask or think. But here's the thing. Even if no one ever came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through the martyrdom of Stephen, Stephen was absolutely successful in God's eyes. And why? Because it's about faithfulness, isn't it? It's about, again, truly loving God and obeying him. And here it is, loving others enough to give them the truth of God's word. And how do we know God was pleased with him? It's right at the end of the chapter. Heaven's open up. Stones flying at him. I see the Son of God sitting at the right hand. I see the Son of God sitting at the right hand of the Father. Right? He gives him this comfort in his martyrdom. And why? Because Jesus Christ is well pleased in Stephen. It's an amazing message that happens to be again right there. Right there. You know, and think of it, because it's not always about numbers. Uh, uh, think of the Old Testament. How many successful Old Testament prophets do you have? How many? Anyone know? Anyone can think of, you know, thousands of people repenting in Israel because of this prophet or that prophet? How many? Right? Right. Think of this. Think of this. You're a young preacher just starting off your ministry in Isaiah chapter 6. And you're given it a, a vision in the year that Uzziah died and there was going to be again a new king. Everything is uncertain. And all of a sudden there's a vision of God on his throne. Here's the true sovereign. Here is the true leader. Here is the true controller of all things. And there's cherubim that happen to begin flying around the throne, crying out, holy, holy, holy. And we have that whole interaction between the Lord and Isaiah. And then God asks this question, who shall I send? And what does Isaiah say? You, you know, even sing the song. Here am I, send me. And then God says, okay, I'll send you. But I want you to know what your ministry is going to be like. And it's in Isaiah chapter 6, beginning at verse number 10. It says this, Make the heart of this people dull, and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn to be healed. Right? Now, does that sound like success? Right? It sounds like the motley crew that happens to be before Stephen at this time. You know, they're going to listen to this message, and they're going to take this message and use it for an opportunity to harden their hearts against the great God that happens to be above. Now, here's the thing. How long would Isaiah keep calling out for repentance in the nation? And he tells him in verse number 11, he says this, Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until the cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people. And the land is a desolate waste. Let me give you a short, short form of how long. All of your life. Right? Now, here's a question. Was God well pleased with Isaiah? Was God well pleased? How many converts? How big your church? What's your congregation look like? How well pleased? You know, it's amazing, isn't it, how we measure success and how the glorious God above, how Jesus Christ truly measures success. It's not always about numbers. 
You know, it's about honoring and glorifying Christ. You know, that is always the key. We keep our eyes on Christ. You know, it's not about human success. It's about faithfulness. It's about glorifying him no matter what the cost or what the results. Isn't it true? You know, let me just give one uh, other observation before, again, I'm done this morning. And that is, again, all of us need to let the scriptures correct us. Right? Right? We realize God, uh, we realize the word of God is truth. And, we, and, and a better way of saying this is the God of the word is truth. And therefore, again, if this is his word, it has authority that happens beginning in our life. We are called to, to be constrained, to let this word of God form us. And the reason why I say that is because so often we can get caught up in so many forms and start trusting forms. Isn't it true? You know, the, um, uh, probably the most illustrious example of this is, happens to be the Roman Catholic Church. Isn't it true? The Roman Catholic Church was not formed overnight, right? Somewhere along the line, here it is. Here's the true church, and they're preaching justification by faith. They're preaching, again, the need of Jesus Christ. He has done it all, and somehow, again, they go over here where they start trusting in forms. Then all of a sudden, again, if you're baptized, paedo-baptism, again, you have nothing to do in paedo-baptism. You haven't put any trust in Christ. It's almost like circumcision, right? Right? Here's Paul. I've been baptized. I, I've been circumcised the eighth day. Right? Look at me. I'm righteous. And here's the Roman Catholic Church. You know, here's a person who's deceased. Here's a person, again, who has died. And they give hope to the family. And this is how, how they're going. They were baptized into the church. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. They may suffer for a while in this place called pur purgatory. But in the end, everything's going to be all right. And why? Because we're trusting in a sign. In a science assignment, let me tell you, pedal baptism is not biblical to begin with. But what they're trusting in is in the sign. I am righteous. I am acceptable before God because of the sign, rather than seeing what baptism is. Baptism is this. You, you know, it's a picture of what has happened when we place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I have died with Christ, and I've been raised in newness of life. I've died, and my sins have been paid for, and all of a sudden I am a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ, Right? It's a sign pointing to a greater reality of what we are trusting in. And here's the thing. We can hear the scriptures. We can even say this, amen. But are we letting the scriptures, are we letting the word of God transform our hearts, transform our words, transform our behavior? that we might be more like the Lord Jesus Christ. And there has to be a willingness. There has to be a willingness to submit ourselves under God by seeing the message of the word and correcting any false assumptions, false beliefs that raise their head above the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And our faith can be costly. But let me tell you, beyond a shadow, a shadow of a doubt, it is so, so glorious. It really is. It is so weighty. And what God calls us to do is make the most of every opportunity to live for God, to magnify him, to make him known.
Let us love him enough to obey him, even in the hard places. And let us seek to trust him, to be bold enough, to be brave enough to make Christ known for his eternal glory. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Father, what an amazing passage of Scripture. What an amazing example, Lord, that Stephen is. And we realize, even as we uh, said, that Stephen is not the hero of his story. Jesus Christ is. Lord, how you can take a simple man, whatever his occupation happened to be, Lord, and make him into a trophy of your grace, so much so that we sitting here this morning are recipients of the grace that was given Stephen. And Lord, as we think of these things, we think of, Lord, how you can use our lives, even if nobody notices, even if nobody perceives as we preach, as we teach, as we disciple, as we make known. Lord, we never know where that fruit will ultimately end. It goes on and on through generation after generation after generation. We just pray that we would be busy about your business, that we would take risk in certain areas, that we would put ourselves where we can be rejected, where we can be misunderstood, where we can be scorned and ridiculed, not just for ridicule and scorn's sake, but because we love you and we love, Lord, those who you've brought into our life that are outside of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be brave, help us to be bold, Help us to have that spirit of wisdom and be full of your Holy Spirit to make known that name that's above every name. We thank you so much. In Christ's name, amen.